If you guys recall, in our lesson, we are going through the story of Balaam these three weeks. And so last week what we wanted to do was just go through the entire story and make sure we understood the story, make sure we kind of saw everything that occurred uh, in, in, in this kind of odd story of Balaam. And, and what we saw when we went through that story is that there were a lot of things that just seemed like we didn't know. Uh, there were some, seemed like there were some holes in the story in the Bible because of what occurred throughout that we kind of needed to, to wrestle with and try to understand better. And so we left the story last week hoping that everyone felt a bit puzzled, hoping that we felt a bit just, okay, there's just more we need to understand. And so week two, this week, what I want to do is I want to focus on this story through the perspective of Balaam. And I want to kind of give you what we believe to be in Balaam's heart, what we believe his motivations to be, what we, what we believe he was trying to seek to try to help you understand why God did some of the things he did uh, through Balaam. And we're going to use some extra biblical resources to help us understand this. As we kind of go through this detective work, you see on your handout I've got a few uh, questions to go through. And I'm going to steal one of those real fast, if you don't mind. Uh, we got some questions to go through on this. And we're going to kind of go through this like a detective, trying to piece together this story of why Balaam did what he did and why God did what he did. And I want to do this, though, to really set up uh, some application today, but even more so, I want to set up what God is trying to reveal about himself, what he's trying to tell us as we talk next week. I call this lesson the story of Balaam, but what this really is is a story of God. It, it, it's a story of who God is, who he's revealing himself to be, what kind of power he has, and he's doing it through a very unlikely character in Balaam. So today we're going we're gonna to walk through this kind of play some detective work, try to understand it. We're going to try to reveal what God is trying to tell us about himself this week. And then next week, whenever we get into those oracles, those, those proclamations that God makes through Balaam, we're going to dive down deep to make sure we really, truly know what it is that he is saying. So before I get into these questions, I want to give everyone just a bit of a reminder of what occurs in the story in the book of Numbers. So if you guys recall, this is happening at the end of the Exodus, right at the very end of the Exodus. If you look on your map here, you can see that the Israelites had gone all the way up there to kind of the northeast side of that map. They're camping out right outside of Moab, right on the entry level going into, um, into Jericho, into the Promised Land. And you know what happens in the story of Jericho and Joshua uh, that's going to occur after they kind of start that final entry into the Promised Land. So they're right there at the end of that Exodus journey. And they've gone through and they've just had all kinds of military successes during this time. They've just defeated Og right to the north. And remember, Og was the descendant of the Rephaim, you know, the, the, the tall guys, the big guys. We learned how big his bed was. Uh, the Moabites and Balak, the king of Moab, is just scared to death because they really considered the Amorites and, and, and Og, these guys, you know, kind of their protectors, their guardians, and they've just been defeated. Uh, Balak gathers the council from Midian together, the Midianites there on the far right. He gathers the elders of Midian together, and he goes, look, we've got to do something about this. These guys, there's this huge horde that has come out of Egypt. You know, I see all these Israelites. We've got to do something about this. Look what they did to Og. You know, we, we've got to find some way to defeat these people uh, before they just they destroy us. And so what the, the grand scheme of Balak is is that they're going to hire this guy named Balaam, uh, who's this, this diviner who's going to come down and curse God's people. 
And they go up, uh, they send the princes of Moab up to where Balaam is. They say, look, we want you to come down and do this. He says, I've got to listen to what God tells me overnight. God tells him, don't go. He sends them home. Moab, the, the king of Moab, Balak, doesn't like that. So he sends more princes up uh, later with more money uh, from an offering standpoint to try to entice him to come down. Balak goes out, or, yeah, Balaam says, I really would like to go, but let me see what God tells me overnight. God tells him, hey, if these guys are telling you to go, go, but only do what I say. Uh, And so Balaam gets up the next morning, gets on his donkey in a hurry. He goes out on the road, and then God is angry at Balaam because he went. Right? He's angry because he went. And we see that story occur where God sends an angel to block the path of Balaam. And the donkey sees the angel, and he gets really, really scared. Balaam doesn't see the angel and gets mad at the donkey. Some weird things happen between Balaam and the donkey. Uh, and, then, and then finally, you know, the angel reveals himself to Balaam. And Balaam's like, look, I'm sorry, whatever I've done to make you mad. If you don't want me to go with Balak and, and to go and, and, and do this, I won't. He goes, no, 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 go ahead and go, but only do what I say. And so Balak meets Balaam there uh, in Moab, and, and he's, he, he tells him, hey, I want you to curse God's people. And Balaam, to his credit, says, I'm only going to do, I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. Uh, and so they go up to this high place, and, and God speaks through Balaam and blesses the people of Israel instead of cursing the people of Israel. <laughs> And Balak goes, all right, so they go to a second spot, and Balaam does the same thing. He, he, God uses him to bless the people of Israel instead of curse the people of Israel. See that happen three times. Then the fourth time, not only does Balaam bless the people of Israel, but he pretty much tells the king of Moab that you're toast, right? And, and it's a, you know, this is all coming from God. And, and so Balaam and Balak, the king of Moab, go their separate ways, and we kind of think that the story is over at this point in time. But we fast forward to Numbers chapter 31, and we find out that not only is the story not over, Balaam reappears, and he reappears when God is pretty angry uh, because the Israelites have, have somehow, some way, been seduced by the women of Moab, and they've gone and they've taken part in some of these, these pagan worship rituals, which would include sexual orgies type, type deals. Uh, and the people have been led astray, and God is pretty mad at that. He commands Moses to lead a, a kind of a war of vengeance against that. The, and we see all these Midianites, all these Moabites killed in this time, and it includes Balaam. And it says they, they kill Balaam because he had led God's people astray. And so we, we, we ended this story last week going, okay, you know, that wasn't just this one-off line in the Bible. In the Bible. We go to the New Testament, and Jesus himself confirms that Balaam had led God's people astray. We see three references in the New Testament for this, and we're trying to figure out what exactly happened. So, so that's the high-level story. So I want to dig down into this kind of question by question and try to get some understanding of what occurred to where, as we look at Balaam through that perspective, we kind of looked at him as, hey, you seem like you did everything right, you you, you went whenever God told you to go. You didn't go whenever you weren't told to go. You, you only spoke the words of God whenever he told you to speak those words. And, and we just, like, look, there's something missing here. It just seems like there's something off. So let's, let's kind of try to figure that out. So question number one in your, uh, on your worksheet is this. It's what is a diviner, right? Were these people like Balaam real people? Like, like what do we know about these people like Balaam? And it's pretty interesting, if you go and you look, in 1933, 
this, this area was uncovered uh, right in the Euphrates Valley that showed uh, all these, this evidence of all these prophets, these, these kind of cultic-like prophets that would have actually you know, exactly matched what Balaam was doing at this time. We, we just saw the evidence of the, the type of pagan rituals that they, were, that they were conducting was right there in this area where this, where this um, Bible study takes, takes place. What's interesting about these pagan prophets is that the pagans at the time really believed that gods were geographic in nature. And and you're going to see this a little bit whenever we get into the story of Ruth that occurs in the time of the judges. You see this play out. But they really believed that all these different people groups who were spread all throughout the world all had their own gods. And those gods, their power was completely isolated to their people groups in the area that they were living and so what would happen is some of these prophets, whenever they were kind of called to, to convene and, and bless or curse or do whatever they were wanting to do, they would try to appeal to the God of whoever's people they were at. And they would do it by cutting up some animals. They had all this different process they would go through. But they were trying to appeal to those local gods. So is, is what we see Balaam doing, whenever he's actually trying to appeal to the God of Israel, isn't actually uncommon for the practices of the day. Now, now, there's a truth we need to know about God in this, and I, think, and I think God is trying to make sure we understand through this story of Balaam. If we think about this very first truth I, th- I think he reveals to us is that for, for the God of the Israelites, the Israelites were making an audacious claim at, at their time by saying, not only is our God our God, but he's actually the only God, and he has no geographic boundary whatsoever. That, that's the one dichotomy you see right off the bat here right now is that you're, the, the people of Moab are calling this great, great prophet in who they think has power. And that great prophet thinks he can appeal to any local geographic gods. And this story is letting us know up front, not only is he the God of the Israelites, he is the only God. And we see that up front with, because remember, the, the uh, people of Moab go up to find Balaam, right? They go up to find Balaam. Balaam is not hanging out with the Jewish people at the time. And who meets him up there, right? Who, who talks to, to, to Balaam whenever he gets there? God does, right? We see God actually approach Balaam uh, at that time. God has no geographical boundary. So that's kind of what is a diviner. These were real people. I want you to understand this was a real story that actually occurred. There's some evidence of exactly this type of work taking place uh, right in that area. The second question I wanted to get to, though, is why was Balaam hired in the first place? Why this guy? And this is pretty interesting. And, and so I'm going to, for, for some of these questions, I'm going to go to some extra biblical resources. And, and what I say by, what I mean by that is I'm going to go to some of the Jewish wisdom that has been passed down across centuries and centuries of Jewish rabbis. So places like from the Talmud and from other, other Jewish sources. So I'm going to say that to tell you right off, I want to caveat it with saying it is not the inspired word of God, right? There's going to be some things I'm going to, going to talk about that is not the actual inspired word of God. It's going to come down from the Jewish people, but I feel comfortable teaching it to a certain extent because we see in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ himself attests to the fact that Balaam's motivations were not true, right? And Balaam was perverse and he led God's people astray. So, so Jesus would have been teaching a people at the time who knew all these Jewish stories and knew all this Jewish wisdom that had been passed down. And I feel like he's kind of affirming in the book of Revelation 
at least, at least the spirit and the motivation of what these people would have known in their heads about Balaam. So I'm going to get into that, but know that caveat right up front, that, that not, not biblical, not inspired word of God, but it does help us connect this story a little bit. So question two, why was Balaam hired in the first place? So the people of Moab really believed that the power of the Jewish people was in their word or was in their prayer to their local God. So what they wanted to do was really counteract that power with someone they thought had a stronger power, like a stronger power with their word, and they thought Balaam had a stronger power. The reason they thought Balaam had a stronger power was because Balaam had actually prophesied in the past that Balak, the king of Moab, would become the king of Moab. The, the Jewish people have these records where Balaam had come and, and told Balaam, he was, one day you will be the king of Moab. But also, if you remember back in, in Numbers, before this story occurred, we saw that this war occurred between the Moabites and the Amorites. Right? Uh, this war had, had broken out. Well, it turns out that Balaam was involved in that too. And Balaam had actually come in, he had been hired by the Amorites, to come in and curse the people of Moab, right? And so when the Amorites had won, they attributed that victory to the fact that Balaam had come in and had prophesied that Moab was going to lose that war. So if you're the king of Moab, if you're Balak, you see that this guy is two for two, right? He is two for two. He has nailed that you're going to be the king of Moab at some point in time, and he nailed the fact that the Amorites were going to defeat the Moabites. And then so he's going, all right, if this guy has the power to allow victory over the, from the Amorites over the Moabites, and then we see that the people of Israel came and defeated the Amorites, right? You know, maybe, just maybe, this guy is going to have the power to come in and curse curse God's people, and that will be the power that needs to overcome. Balaam, Balak believes that Balaam is a stronger supernatural force than God and Moses and, and, and what is happening through God's people. That is, that is what he believes. The truth of God is that we know that the God's, I think, is a bit revealing to us through this story, is that there's no power in the prophecy of a pagan a pagan prophet, right? There's absolutely no power. They're appealing to some supernatural power that actually does not exist. There is no power there. We see that a lot in the Bible, right? We, we, we see that in the story of Elijah. You know, we, we see this all throughout where God is, is being put up against the power of a local geographic God and he's re- revealing himself to be the ultimate true power. There is no stronger word than the word of God. But that at least helps you understand why Balaam has been hired in the first place. This guy's two for two, and, and so Balak is saying, that is the guy I have to have. He's going to come down, and he's going to do it. Now, what that helps you understand about Balaam is that this is a guy who's probably made a lot of money out of this trade some way, shape, or form. So I think from, from that perspective, we need to know that Balaam must be a pretty shrewd businessman. And this is just Blake using his logic, right? I don't know why Blake just referred to himself in the third person. Uh, this is why I'm, this is me using my logic, right? So, so, so we know that he actually doesn't have supernatural power, right? We, we know that as a truth. But somehow, he's convinced a lot of people that he does. And we, 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 we know that happens. We see that happen in America all the time today, that people convince other people of supernatural powers. So he's convinced these people, and he's probably made a killing out of it, given he's convinced kings, right? He's convinced kings of this power. 
So let's go on here. Uh, so we know that in our head, right? He's two for two, and people think he has this power. Let's go to question three here. So the answer to two, why was he hired in the first place, is because he's pr- or he had shown them before that he, he was able to predict future events, right? Like I said, we don't believe that he actually had that power, but somehow he either got lucky or he figured out how to work the system in some way because he had, he had told Balak that he was going to be king of Moab, and he had gone in and he had cursed the Moabites whenever they were fighting the Amorites. And the Moabites considered that's the reason that they lost the war. So, so an enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? It's kind of where, where Balak is coming from at this point in time. So, question number three, if we keep going down this. So, let's, let's kind of get ourselves in this story right now. We started with, what is a diviner? What's a prophet? What were these guys? Question number two, why, why are they even talking to Balaam in the first place? Let's go to this next part of the story where the princes of Moab are coming up and they're talking to Balaam. For me, my, my first question that I had on this was uh, something, something else must be happening there in this story. It seems like there's something missing uh, that's going on. So, so why is it that they came to him first to speak to him, and, and what exactly goes on? If you read in Numbers chapter 22, and we look at verse 8 real fast, it says this at this point in time. Uh, after the, the uh, princes have come up. And it says, and, and Balaam says this to them. He goes, and he said to them, lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Lodge here tonight. So, so my question up front was, why did Balaam tell them to stay the night? That was, that was something when I read this text, it just seemed odd to me. Why did he tell them uh, to stay the night? And, and I believe if we go back through a lot of the text, what, what happens here is that Balaam has kind of convinced them that the gods speak to him at night, right? Now, we know that God is not limited to speak to people through dreams or through nighttime, right? God, God is all-powerful, all-present all the time. But he's convinced them that he's going to speak to them uh, overnight. So in, in some of these Jewish teachings outside of the Bible, they believe that there's something held back here in the text, they believed that Balaam was actually too vain to let the men know that, that he was fully at the control of God, that God was the person in power here, that God was the one who could tell him yes or no. He, they thought that he was just too vain to admit that. And so he's trying to concoct some sort of scheme to get them to stay over at night. And, and during this process, he's trying to imply to these men that if only he had more power or if only he had more money offered to him, maybe then... He could go and he could curse God's people. So we see in the story where Balaam is saying, no, look, I can't do it unless God tells me. But there's something else going on there. Because we see Balak later on in the story, whenever he gets that first rejection from Balaam, what does he immediately do? He sends higher-ranking higher princes and he sends more money to Balaam's way, trying to convince them to do it. So the Jewish people believe that Balaam had implied to these princes of, well, you know, God, God really doesn't want me to go do this right now, but maybe... You know, if you came back with more power, or maybe if you came back with more money, he might change his mind. He's kind of using God as an excuse to try to up the ante because he knows. Remember, we've, we, we see this guy. He's a pretty shrewd businessman, right? So he's trying to get more money out of the situation. To the truth of God, that, that if, I, if you wrote down any note on this question, God reveals something about himself here in, that, in, in this question. 
And, and one thing he reveals, because it seems like God always has more information in this story than we do as we read through the text, God knows our inward motivations, even if our outward appearances or our outward actions don't show that. Everything we read about Balaam and everything those princes would have experienced at that time seemed like this guy was a fully devout follower of Yahweh, of, of the Jewish God, right? But God knows our hearts, right? He's revealing that to us now that, that there is something amiss with Balaam. He knows it, even if those other guys uh, who are around him right at the time don't have any idea. Does that make sense? If we kind of try to understand why it was that these people got sent back and then why they came so quickly with more princes and more money. So I hope for just a minute here, you're starting to get a feeling that Balaam might quite not be the guy uh, that we all thought he was the first time we read through this text. So question four. So, so question four is about the donkey. And I promised you guys last week that you're gonna, you were going to know two things when we got done with this story today. Uh, I told you, you're going you're gonna to agree that Balaam probably needed to die. Uh, and you're going to also agree that you're going to feel really bad for that donkey. So let's get into the donkey part of this story. So, so as we get back here, so Balaam has sent the first princes back. The second princes have come. And Balaam tells the second princes, guys, I told the first guys, you know, I can't do it. Uh, and then God meets him at night, and he goes, who are these men who are with you? And, and he goes, hey, it's a, the princes, they come for me again. And God says, well, go ahead and go with them if they're calling you, but only do what I say. And so Balaam, immediately the next morning, he goes down, he saddles his donkey to get ready for the ride. So the Jewish people, uh, they thought that, um, that, let me find my notes here real quick. The Jewish people thought that, there was something kind of interesting going on with the fact of how quickly Balaam saddles his donkey. And so the Jewish people taught this lesson. They said that what was not shown in the text, and again, take this with a bit of a caveat, is that God spoke again to Balaam after he saddled his donkey, and he said this. He goes, Wicked one, my servant Abraham already preempted you when he saddled his donkey personally. So dedicated was he to fulfill God's command to sacrifice his son. So this is a reference back to the, the story of Abraham and Isaac, which you know Jeff talked about a little bit uh, in his lesson a couple weeks ago. But it's a reference back to the fact that when Abraham was going off to sacrifice Isaac, he took that as a personal obligation to fulfill God's command to sacrifice his son. And even though Abraham had all of these servants and all these different people who probably would have normally saddled his donkey for him, he went out personally first thing in the morning to make sure he was obliging by God's command. And that was an act of faith. Uh, from Abraham. And, and luckily we all know how God stayed the hand uh, of, of Abraham and we know how that story ended up. What God is contrasting here, what the Jewish people believed, is that they're saying, Balaam, you were so excited that God told you you were allowed to go on this trip. You were so excited that what was in your heart was that you were going to find a way to make money off of this. You wanted to curse God's people. You were so excited about it. Not because Balaam has a lot of money. He's a shrewd businessman. He had plenty of men ready to saddle his donkey. And he goes down at first light and does it himself because he's so happy to go and get this opportunity to curse God's people and make a killing out of it. So that's the very first part that happens here um, with this donkey. However, there's other things that occur on the road with this donkey that just don't make sense. As you keep going through this story, you know, that donkey stops, and Balaam makes a reference in that whole interchange with the donkey that the donkey has humiliated him, just absolutely humiliated him. 
and we don't really know why, other than the fact that it's a bit odd that a donkey starts talking to you in the middle of you know, all these people. So the Zohar, another biblical reference, they explain that Balaam really believed that his powers of prophecy came from his donkey, or at least he had, he had helped explain this to people. Now here's where this thing gets weird, and, and this, is, this is why I, I worry about recording these messages every now and then, because have we not been recording this message today, I've got all kinds of jokes in my head about what get ready to happen with this donkey, but I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> So, so Balaam believes that the power comes from the donkey, and the way that he would tap into the power of the donkey was he would be intimate sexually with the donkey. I mean, like I said, I can't make this stuff up. If it's not true, blame the Jewish people over centuries uh, for teaching this as a truth, right? But he believed that the donkey, by intimate relations with the donkey, it would unleash this power that he could then use to prophesy and to curse and to bless and to do all these different things. So it says that um, it, it says here that that what the uh, what the people thought that the donkey said that there was some additional wording that occurred between this dialogue between Balaam and the donkey. So let me go to Numbers chapter twenty-two, verses twenty-eight through thirty. And I want you to hear what the Bible says about this conversation between Balaam and the donkey. It says, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and, and she, being the donkey, said to Balaam, What have I done to you, and that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Right? He feels like he's been made an actual fool of. And so what the, what the Jewish people taught that occurred elsewhere in that conversation between Balaam and the donkey was this. It says that the Moabite dignitaries, these princes, asked Balaam, they go, hey, this donkey, this is a long journey. Why don't you ride a horse for this journey? And Balaam responded that he had sent his horse to graze. But immediately the donkey, because he's now talking, he retorts and he goes, am I not your donkey? To which Balaam responds, well, you're just for carrying burdens. And, and, and the donkey goes, on which you have ridden. And Balaam goes, well, only on occasion have I actually ridden you. I normally ride my horse, but you're just for carrying burdens. And then the donkey responds this way. He says, since you first started until now, you have always ridden on me. Moreover, by day, I provide you with riding, and by night, with intimacy. So, so the Jewish people believe that the donkey says this in the face of all the... Remember, remember, the Moabites have sent these princes who have more power and more esteem and are more you know, influential in Moabite society and Midian society. And they're just listening to this donkey reveal the most grotesque detail uh, that you can possibly imagine about what's occurring between Balaam and... That poor, poor donkey. So I told you, you were going to feel bad for this donkey, right? Um, I know I did as I went through that. So, so at this point in time, Balaam, if you believe these accounts, right? Balaam is just utterly humiliated. He has been broken. He has absolutely been broken. The angel reprimands Balaam. Uh, we now understand that the angel reprimands him because of how he struck the donkey, but there was all this other stuff going on. But you can just see that God is getting to the heart that there is something else behind Balaam. You know, his motivations are impure. His methods are impure. He really is excited to be on this journey to go and curse the people to make money. There's just something else going on here. But I think the biggest truth that I, I see God really revealing us to this in, in this story, in this little question, 
is that God can make the most proud of us humble in just an instant, right? He can, he can humble any of us at any point in time. And Bill Search just got done teaching on the um, story of Daniel, right, uh, in this class. And if you remember from the story of Daniel, you know, God humbles the greatest military leader of world history at this time in Nebuchadnezzar, all the way to the point of he goes off on a seven-year stint where he thinks he's an animal, right? Uh, God can humble any of us. So, so with that truth being said, I want you to take just a couple minutes at your table, and I want you to discuss this. When in your life do you feel like you've been humbled by God? I suspect God has not had any donkey come along your side and, and talk about your misdeeds in front of Moabite princes, but, but when in your life do you feel like you've actually been humbled by God? Talk about that for a few minutes, and we'll come back. I know, I know God is able to humble any of us, right? And, and sometimes that's exactly what we need. We need to be broken so that we, 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 we look up and we realize that God is truly the source of everything, that, that it's easy for us, especially as American and especially as men, to get a bit ahead of ourselves at times and think that, that we have more power than we really have. I know one of the moments in my life that I've been completely humbled uh, I took a job in Australia working for this guy, the CFO, um, and I remember thinking I was a pretty smart guy uh, before I took that job and that I was probably just as smart as a CFO. And, and I got there to that job, and I spent about five hours with that guy, and I thought I had an IQ of about 25. You know, it was just one of those. I got to interact with a man who was so much smarter than I. He was so much more wise. He had so much more experience. He thought in ways I couldn't even dream of thinking. And so I just tried to have him rub off on me uh, over time. But I've never felt in my life, I was like, I've just never felt so outmatched from an intellectual standpoint whenever I was with another guy. And that was such a humbling experience for me. And God used that. He used that in a big way. Because at the same time he was humbling me professionally, I was being humbled as I got into the Word of God for the first real time in my life in detail. The Word of God was humbling me. I was going to work and I was being humbled. And I realized I'm not nearly as good as I thought I was. Right? And, and so God uses that. right? And then, he, and then whenever he, he breaks us down that way and he humbles us, he then can, can build us for much, much greater purposes for his purposes. He takes us out of our will and he takes us into his will. And you see that happen a little bit here with Balaam. Right, remember, you know, after this whole incident with the donkey, you know, Balaam's like, "Look, if if I if you want me to go back home, I'll go back home." He goes, "No, no, no. Now, now you go. But remember, you say what I tell you to say." Jewish people really believe that Balaam had been broken. Right, he had been absolutely broken at this point in time. He realized the power of God, and he knew that all for the rest of this journey, however long it lasted, he was just going to be a conduit for whatever it was that God wanted to do through him. That was the only option he had. So we see God go ahead and send him this way, and then you see God do some pretty incredible things through Balaam with the oracles that occur as we go through the story. So, so that's why, you know, whenever you that question five, does he want him to go or not, right? I think, I think he wants him to go now that he's in the right condition to go, right? He is broken to the point where he is the right tool that God can use at this point in time. God could use him however he wanted to, but he's in the right condition for God to use him in the way that's going to bless the people of Israel that was all according to God's plan to begin with. So let's get to question six. So, so now we're at the point where Balak has interacted with Balaam, 
And they're going up on that very first mountain to, to curse the people of Israel. And again, Balaam has told Balak, I can only say what God is going to allow me to say. Uh, but they're going up on that very first mountain. And I just wanted to point this out to make sure you kind of saw this in the text. So that very first mountain that they go up, they ascended a place called Bamoth Baal, which, which translates to the heights of Baal. And remember how I talked about the gods, that these pagan gods were geographic gods in nature. And if you read your Old Testament, you're going to read about the god Baal a lot, right? Baal is a, a pagan god that shows up a lot in the Old Testament. But just think about this. You've got, you've got the very first place they're going to go to curse the people of Israel is this place that's called the Heights of Baal. I mean, in the geography itself, it's saying this is a place of Canaanite worship of the, of the god Baal, right? This is how significant that is. And then who's going to be giving that curse? A guy named Balaam, right? A guy who's named after the god Baal is going to be providing that curse. I think it's I think one thing this shows us is that God has a bit of a sense of humor. Um, but but you're seeing that the the world, the the, the pagan world is, is saying, we're going to throw our best at you. We've got Balaam at the heights of Baal going to issue this curse. And then what happens whenever they get to the height of that mountain? Balaam utters his mouth, and not a curse, but a blessing comes out from God's people. God is showing us that it does not matter where you are, what mountain you're doing, what what God you think you're worshiping. I can make all of those gods that you've created for yourself just seem foolish, right? Just seem absolutely foolish. Throw me your best, and we're going to show you what happens. Think about that story of Elijah again, right? You get all these prophets of a pagan god coming and and they cannot make anything happen on that altar and then what does elijah do he throws all that water on the altar he soaks it and soaks it and soaks it and then god shows his majesty to make all of them you know just look foolish that they've been worshiping a god that they created themselves there's all kinds of application in that how many times do we create gods for ourselves every single moment we we, we create the God of money, we create the God of pride, the God of fame, you know, all these different things we create for ourselves. God can make any, the true God can make any of those gods seem foolish just like that. So let's get to this last question here. Question seven. What happens at the end of this story? What happens between the end of this story where Balaam and Balak get done going through these four oracles uh, and then it seems like Balaam goes away and Balak goes away. What happens in between that point in time and when we see uh, Balaam pop back up on this, this you know, war that occurs where Balaam is killed? What exactly happens there? And so for this, I, I, there's not a lot of research on this, but let's just use our logic for a minute. Remember, Balaam is a shrewd businessman. And it seems like his biggest customer to date has been Balak and some of these kings of this region. He's probably made a lot of money off these people. He's been called. He was the most revered prophet of all the prophets in this area. He's made a lot of money off these guys. And he has just been utterly humiliated through this entire process, right? Absolutely humiliated. His reputation is in shambles. He's probably not going to get a job from any king of the Canaanite area at all to come and do what he used to be able to do. He's kind of out of employment at this point in time. So if you're Balaam, 
and you believe a few things. You believe that you need to make money. You believe that, uh, that maybe God really doesn't have the power that he thinks he has, and maybe he, he is more geographic in nature. You know, and, and you believe that you need to get on the good side of these kings again if you want to have future employment. What would you do? You know, and, and, and I, think, I think Balaam finds a solution where he goes, Hey, hey Balak, you wanted me to go up on that mountain and curse God's people because you wanted those people to fail, and you wanted them to not... not you know, run all over you, you know. He goes, I can't do that, obviously, right? I, I can't go up on that mountain and curse God's people. But I do have an idea, right? I do have an idea. He goes, if, if you want to neutralize the effect of these people, maybe a better way to do it, instead of me cursing them, is get them to hook up with all these women and lead them astray, right? And so, so what we learn from the text is that it was Balaam's idea to have what happened happen, to have all the women of Moab and all the Midianite women to, to, to really entice the men of Israel to go astray. And so what, what I think we can deduce logically is that he's put two and two together and says, I'm not getting any more business out of these guys unless I find a way to, to solve the problem that's been created here. And he comes up with a way to entice those men to go over to the women and to, to be pulled over to that pagan worship area to, to neutralize them. He thinks that will solve the problem. Well, of course, we, we find, you know, something happened here. You know, we find that, you know, Balaam has to pay for this. You know, God executes his own judgment in this situation. God both executes punishment on his people, but he also executes punishment on the people who led his people astray. We see that happen in the book as Balaam is killed. But I want you to see that that's probably the most logical conclusion we can come from, is that Balaam probably went home, was just completely torn up by himself. He probably went and talked to his wife and told his wife what happened and says, well, you can't afford our mortgage anymore. You're not going to be able to get paid anymore. And he goes back to Balaam with that idea to seduce God's people into another way. So there's a little bit of we, we can learn uh, about God in this story uh, as we go through that. And, and one thing I think we can learn about God is a lot of the fact that God, you know, God protects his people uh, in, in a pretty big way. But if you look at who his people are, we always are going to think about God's people as all of us sitting around these tables right now. And we are part of God's people. The, the covenant has been passed. The new covenant we have in Jesus Christ means that we are his people. What, as I read this story of Balaam, and I went through it, and I really thought about it and prayed about it, what I really realized is that I seem a lot more like Balaam in this story than I do seem like the people of Israel. And, and, and I say that because, because I do a lot of the things that Balaam does in this story. I, I, I t- sometimes try to make sure I look like I'm obeying God, even if there's inward motivations that are a little bit different in my heart. Uh, I, I sometimes fear the repercussions of the world more than I fear the repercussions of God. Uh, I worry more about what the world might think of what I've done more than I do whether or not God has been pleased with my actions and my faithfulness. You know, I, I look for other ways. I, I, I'm scared to death that somebody may come along and tell my deepest, darkest secrets at some point in time. Now, I promise you, I've never engaged in anything like Balaam did with the donkey. But, but you know, we all have our deep, dark secrets, right? We can all relate to those things, and we're scared to death that they're going to be revealed. I could really, as sad as it seems, I could really empathize with Balaam a little bit in this story. I feel like I've, I've missed the mark. I've gone astray. And what I think, what I love that this story tells us about God 
is that God knows that, right? He knows my motivations. He knows my heart. He knows my sin. He knows my depravity. He knows our depravity. He knows all of our sin. And yet, what do we read? Even though we were still sinners, he came and he died, right? He came. He created that alternative way that Jeff talked about, right? He came and he did that for us, knowing our condition. When you read this story about Balaam and you just read some of these things that just make you sick to your stomach that Balaam probably did, I hope sometimes that makes you sick to your stomach about just who we are internally, but then rejoice in the fact that God is a God of grace. God is a God of second chances. God is a God who says, I will take you where you are and I will transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Right? That is the God that we worship. So we're going to wrap up this, this lesson with prayer. I hope you leave this understanding a bit more why God acted the way he did in the Bible. And I hope you always look back on these situations where you can't understand why God did what he did. Keep digging through it, right? We'll find the answers to this because God is a just God. He's a wise God. He's a loving God. He's also a God of grace. Next week what we're going to dive into is we're going to sit there and we're going to look at what specifically does God choose to say through the mouth of Balaam? There's four oracles that God, God puts in Balaam's mouth for him to profess to the people of Israel. And those oracles are pretty important. And they will set us up for our story of Ruth that's going to start here in two weeks. So we'll get to that next week. Uh, and if you have any questions about the lesson today, I'm always, I'll be here after class. I just won't answer any questions about the donkey. So sound good? All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for these men. Uh, thank you for this group. I thank you that you've given, given us this space and these resources to have this study. Uh, thank you for each man in here, and I thank you for, for the life you have brought them. You have brought us a life in Christ. Uh, we are sinners. We are depraved. We, we have the same motivations in our heart that Balaam did. And I thank you for coming anyway and saving us the way you have. May you watch over us. May you increase our faith. May you be with us daily. I thank you again for each man in this room. And may they be leaders for your kingdom in your church here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.